If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. If you went on a road trip and you didn't stop for a Big Mac or drop a crispy fry between the car seats or use your McDonald's bag as a placemat, then that wasn't a road trip. It was just a really long drive. At participating McDonald's. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. The history of the British Empire has often been told as one of an all-conquering spread of British values and influence across the globe. But according to historian David Viva's new book, The Great Defiance, In its early years, the progress of the colonial project was much more halting, characterised by resistance, violence and often failure. I spoke to David to find out more. Thank you so much for joining me today, David. To start us off, could you lay out the central argument that you make in your new book, The Great Defiance? It's a really exciting time for historians uh, of empire and the British Empire more specifically. And, you know, with global history, where we have, have these histories that bring the world closer together and comparatively, and more especially in recent years, you know, the public discourse surrounding race and empire and the legacies of that. You know, we're seeing lots of fruitful scholarship, uh, both academic, but also, you know, trade books for general audiences. And that's been smashing. And one While it's important to acknowledge the significant impact the British Empire had, especially in the modern period, there is a danger of over-egging its impact in an earlier period, when the the empire was first emerging. And so um, the book essentially challenges these kind of theological approaches in which people often look at the earlier period knowing, obviously, that the British Empire, you know, covers the world and rules 400 million people and builds an empire the sun never sets on. But that that isn't quite the case for the first 300 years. And so there's a danger in that sort of approach in, in understanding the people the British encounter across the world as, as being kind of passive and inevitable victims of colonialism. This, this is an inevitable process and it kind of strips them of their power and their complexity and, you know, and, and, you know, the richness of their cultures and their own ability to kind of shape the environments around them. And so what The Great Defiance does, what my book does, is it takes the perspective of Indigenous and non-European people in the 300 years between 1500 to 1800, roughly the early modern period, before the British Empire is all conquering. You know, we know it gets there eventually, but that's not an inevitability. 
And in fact, it looks very different to what the British themselves hoped it would look like. And so by adopting the perspective of the people the British encountered and the people who encountered the British, that's really important, it tells the story of how the English and later the British Empire, as it was expanding, um, could often be pushed to the margins of the regions it was involved in, or its ambitions could be contained by non-Europeans and by Indigenous people, and even, more often, that they could be resisted quite fiercely, often with force. And often this resistance was quite successful, not just in defeating the British, which sometimes they did, but in certainly reshaping British designs and ambition. And so that shows the impact that Indigenous and non-European had, uh, non-Europeans had in the story of British expansion in the early modern period. And so by taking these stories and by looking at these historic actors that have often been erased through British histories of the empire and through books that tell us how Britain made the modern world, which rarely see the names of indigenous people or non-Europeans. And it's all about the heroes from, you know, Francis Drake to Robert Clive and and Nelson. And and it puts these non-European indigenous people back into that story centre and shows the kind of profound ways they could resist and even contained British ambitions across the world in the early modern period. So there's an awful lot to delve into here about the nature of imperialism and the way that we think about empire. But just to make sure that we are grounding this in concrete terms, can you give us examples of places that did encounter resistance to British imperialism and and the impact of that resistance? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is sort of a sprawling book and the British Empire, whilst we've often carved it into different regions of the world, there's a first British Empire in the Atlantic and then a second British Empire later in Asia and Africa. This book kind of takes that all together as a kind of proper global history in which the English and and, and from the 18th century, the British were active and their presence uh, to expand uh, uh, simultaneously across the world. And so it takes sort of 12 to 15 case studies of, of societies and states who encounter the British and defy them. And so that defiance comes in a range of different ways. And so some of the stories are about the more typical anti-colonial resistance that you might expect, this kind of bloody intergenerational struggle for survival by Indigenous people. And we find that happens more often in the Atlantic region. So uh, one of the things I was very conscious in doing for the book was to place Ireland first in the story of the British Empire. Ireland often gets ignored because um, it's very often integrated into domestic English and British history. Uh, Eventually it becomes a kingdom uh, ruled by the English monarch and therefore becomes less a colony and more another realm and therefore we sort of subsume it into Tudor and Stuart history um, whereas actually it's it's England's first colony and uh, and therefore a lot of the strategies and a lot of the outcomes of English expansion in Ireland we see later on around the Atlantic and in other parts of the world and so the Irish study is a really good example of the power in which the British first of all the English and later the British encounter uh, in unexpected ways that isn't necessarily common knowledge for audiences unfamiliar academically with the British Empire. And so what we find is that the English have been active in Ireland for a very long time, ever since the Norman period, when it was lashed with Anglo-Norman colonists during the 12th, 13th, 14th centuries. And despite the sort of hundreds of years of attempting to colonise Ireland, the Gaelic Irish, the Indigenous Irish, are quite successful at holding the Anglo-Normans off. By the 15th century, with the Hundred Years' War in Europe and 
and then England collapses into civil war with the Wars of the Roses, it gives the chance of the Irish lords to, to regroup and they push the English to the eastern coast of Ireland. They hem them in into a, a region known as the Powell, which literally means fence. They fence the English in. So the English centre of power shrivels to the area around Dublin. So in one way, very politically and mili- militarily, the Irish are successful in containing the English at the outbreak of the early modern period. Um, And what we find is even those English, those Anglo-Norman lords who had colonised and settled in Ireland, they find Gaelic culture really attractive. And what happens is over the centuries, they uh, become uh, subsumed into the culture of Ireland. So when new English colonists come over in the Elizabethan period, they're shocked to see the old English, they call them. They've adopted Irish names and they dress in the Irish fashion um, and they're sort of scandalised by it. So even the English colonists themselves uh, go to use a term, native. And they're attracted to Irish culture. It's rich bardic traditions. It's kind of vibrant Christian worship. And English colonisation can't compete in that respect. So what um, uh, the Tudors do, when the Tudor dynasty is established, they attempt to reconquer Ireland. And we use that phrase, the reconquest of Ireland. Well, Ireland was never really conquered in the first place. That's a bit of kind of English uh, propaganda. Um, and they attempt to, um, to conquer Ireland, again, as their Anglo-Norman ancestors kind of gave up. And uh, and there's more success this time. You know, the Tudor dynasty brings some centralisation and stability to English power overseas. Um, and Henry VII and Henry VIII established Lord Lieutenants to, to, to bring Ireland to heel and to establish English authority. But they encounter actually a series of old English and Irish lords who are able to match them, um, not just militarily, but also politically. The atrocities the English commit in their frustration at not being able to defeat the Irish lords are some of the earliest uh, atrocities that England commits overseas. And we don't know about these these stories and they're quite harrowing and the, and the source material is really rich. They engineer famines um, and they scorch the earth. And in Munster alone, tens of thousands are killed. And the idea is they're trying to starve the Irish lords out, force them to surrender. And there's one, you know, very grisly English uh, general and he lines the path to his tent with the decapitated heads of Irish villagers. And someone sort of says, oh, this is really grisly. And he declares that, you know, this is the only way the Irish can be cowed. When they see the heads of their mothers, their daughters, their sisters, their brothers and their sons, only then will they submit to English authority. So Ireland becomes this laboratory for English atrocity against colonised peoples. And that later becomes the norm of English and British expansion in many places across the world. What the English find is that this does not cow the Irish. Irish culture is resilient. Its its political and economic base is resilient. And despite invading Ireland repeatedly with large forces, the English find that they're constantly fighting back and having to subdue the Irish lords, even once they've submitted to English control. The amount of money England has to spend and the amount of its soldiers who are killed in Ireland is actually more combined than the English war against Spain and its intervention in the Netherlands in support of the rebellion against Spain. Those are often seen as the main kind of English entanglements um, under Elizabeth, but it's actually Ireland that drains more of England's money and claims more English lives than any other uh, theatre that England's uh, engaged in. And so it's this kind of example of intergenerational resistance on an epic scale that we don't often hear about, despite its scope and its intensity. And it's not the story of English superiority over Indigenous or non-European people, but rather the way in which England 
English ambitions had to compromise when faced with real local power brokers and historical actors that were quite capable of defeating the English and of forcing them to almost... The English state is forced to the brink of bankruptcy, almost, in fighting Hugh O'Neill. So I think the Irish example is a good example of how um, resistance could slow the progress of the British Imperial Project. But were there any cases in which that progress was completely halted? Areas that the British ultimately failed to colonise because of resistance? Yeah, absolutely. Um, the If you had a map of the English and then the British Empire by the 18th century, it would look very different to its earlier architects. The regions they hoped to see English trade and English uh, territory extend and prosper are completely missing and you know when i talk about the the english or british expansion it's not a centrifugal force coming out from from england or britain it actually ends up being a very ragged twisted form which the british often have very little control over so when i talk about the compromise of what the british want and then what they're able to acquire through their encounter with these very powerful actors it's it's a lot different to what they intend and so a really good example of that is is Southeast and East Asia. So we know that one of the key areas of colonisation and conquest is the Indian subcontinent, which is quite well known, with the English East India Company and eventually places like Madras, Bombay and Calcutta becoming the capitals of the British Empire. And then in the 19th century, obviously, with the British Raj. And But actually, if the English Empire had succeeded as it intended to, the focus of English overseas expansion would have been Japan or Java in Southeast Asia. What draws English merchants and naval captains and navigators and officials and generals over to Asia is not India and its textiles, but rather it's the spices of Indonesia um, and the silver of, of Japan and the raw silk of China. These are the commodities, you know, if you open your kitchen cupboard, I'm sure like me, you have a spice cupboard that has all these spices that are probably out of date by now because you promised yourself you're going to cook with them one day. Um, that small cupboard of spices in the early modern period would have been worth an absolute fortune. Spices drove the early modern world economy. And things like pepper and nutmeg and cardamom, that is found in some places in India, but really some of the only places it's grown, um, such as nutmeg, are on tiny islands in the Indonesian uh, region and Southeast Asia and, and, and further east. And so when the English first arrive in Asia and the East India Company is launched, it goes straight to uh, Sumatra and Java, the islands of uh, of Southeast Asia. And um, what it hopes to do is to copy the Portuguese and the Dutch, both of whom were busy establishing these kind of violent trading monopolies, controlling the spice trade and therefore controlling supply and demand, driving up massive prices in Europe and making an absolute fortune. So if you think of somewhere like Portugal before the 15th century, it's a rather small, impoverished, kind of minor European power. But after the 16th century, when it establishes a partial monopoly of spice trade, uh, Lisbon becomes one of the centres of, of Europe and the riches of these pour in and transform uh, Portugal and it helps to establish a Portuguese empire in the Americas and elsewhere in the world. So the control of the spices has a, has the very real uh, effect of being able to transform these European countries into into big players. And England looks on, you know, little impoverished, quite drab England on the perch on the northwest of Europe, looks at Portugal and says, well, why why can't that be us as well? And so they launch the East India Company and they want to break into the spice monopoly and try and 
try and have a slice of the the pie themselves. And it's not the Portuguese that stop them, or the Dutch, but rather when they establish themselves in the islands of Indonesia and elsewhere, they find it very difficult to compete against the uh, non-European groups who are already established there. People from um, uh, the Malay or um, Gujarati merchants from India. Uh, the most sophisticated trading merchant group they encounter um, are the Chinese. The Chinese diaspora is uh, present all across Asia in the 17th and 18th centuries. And now China itself, there is a trading ban. People from the outside world can't come to China and trade for its goods. So um, the coastal states uh, and provinces of China establish communities in all of the major ports across Asia. And they bring their goods out from China and they trade for the stuff that they want there. So the Chinese bring all of the most coveted goods in the world, porcelain, lacquer goods, they bring raw silk. And these things command an absolute fortune back in Europe. And the English arrive and and they realise, right, we need spices. But to trade for spices, you need a, a commodity that other people want. And unfortunately, England's main main export was was wool and woolen goods. Now, in the tropical climes of Southeast Asia, not many people want a woolly jumper, as hard as the English try. And um, in the letters the merchants write back to London, they complain, how can we compete? These people are draped in silk. It's very hard to flog them woolly jumpers. And so what the English find they have to do is they have to pay for everything in silver. And it triggers a moral panic in England that, that England is being drained of its wealth and the money is going straight into the pockets of foreign merchants and foreigners. And there's a real xenophobic undercurrent to the debate back in England. But the East India Company has no choice because no one wants English goods. So they come up with the idea of trying to get hold of some of the goods that people in Southeast Asia do want, like porcelain and raw silk and Indian textiles. And this is where they come back against the Chinese, who have established an unofficial monopoly over trade in Southeast Asia. Uh, The Chinese are sophisticated merchants, and they also adapt culturally and integrate themselves into local society. So the English complain, how are we supposed to compete with the Chinese merchants? They come to Java, they marry Javanese wives, they establish Javanese families, and they convert to Islam as well. And so these Chinese merchants are cultural chameleons. So the English find it very difficult to compete, and they get very frustrated. This is what the English do when they can't succeed against foreigners, they lash out and and they begin to stereotype the Chinese. Um, And they use well-worn anti-Semitic tropes from Europe. The Chinese are just like the uh, the Jews in in, in Europe. And you see this kind of vitriol, this sort of very... um, prejudicial stereotyping of the Chinese merchants because they're successful and the English aren't. And soon they attempt to use force against the Chinese. So they lay in wait in the ports to pounce on Chinese ships as they enter the port to loot them and to hope to undermine the Chinese. But the Chinese are like the rock stars of the trading world of Asia. And the local rulers in Indonesia and elsewhere um, take the side of the Chinese merchants. They drive the English out of their port. So the centre of the spice trade is Banten, a port in today's Java, and it was the centre of the pepper trade. Almost half of all of the world's pepper passed through Banten. And the English find that they've alienated everyone. Uh, the king of Banten, the prince regent of Banten, they've attempted to seize Chinese ships, and uh, and they failed to do that as well. And so uh, they're expelled from Banten, and they are left adrift in Southeast Asia. And so um, they're essentially shut out of the spice trade. And to compensate, 
they then try and establish themselves in Japan. Japan is completely unknown to the English at this time. There's some accounts from the Portuguese and from the Dutch, and they're aware that there's an Englishman established in Japan, uh, this chap called William Adams, who, whilst English, is actually in the employ of the Dutch East India Company. His ship is shipwrecked, and he washes up in Japan, and he's taken under the wing of the shogun, Yeyusa. Uh, the Tokugawa shogun had established itself in Japan, and it welcomed foreigners to come and trade and to live in Japan, but it was very cautious of European influence and becoming too subversive and corrosive, eroding indigenous Japanese culture and religion. And so they keep they contain the English and the Dutch and the Portuguese to certain cities where they can keep an eye on them. So the English rock up to uh, Hirado in Japan, and who should they meet again but the Chinese, who are well-established and monopolising trade. And once again, the English are struggling to compete. And so they try and strike a deal with the shogun and the shogun essentially wants them to side against the Portuguese and and, and to condemn uh, Catholicism, which he outlaws in Japan. And he's also very aware, Tokugawa Yeyusu, about European expansion elsewhere in Asia, the conquest of the Philippines by the Spanish and the Dutch activity in Indonesia. And so gradually he strips the Europeans of their rights and the English as well. And suddenly the English are confined to Hirado, which is really just a fishing port, hundreds of miles away from from Idu, the, the, the capital. And once again, the English are frustrated. They take to their ships and they start roaming the seas, seizing Chinese and Japanese ships. But um, it's either the, the, the Shogun's way or the highway. And the English are really struggling to learn that they're actually quite irrelevant in southeastern East Asia. And so the Shogun immediately excludes the Europeans from Japan. All but the Dutch are allowed to remain. So by uh, the 1623... The English have failed in Southeast Asia, the heart of global trade in the spice trade. They failed to crack Japan, the key to entering the China trade. And so their success in India is really an accident. It's a byproduct of their failures elsewhere, where people have shut the door on them and rejected their their, their violence and their coercion. And really it rejected the idea that the English can bring something to global trade. They can't. And so from the early 17th century, the English confine themselves to India because that's the last place that really is willing to accept their trade. So we can talk about intergenerational resistance and bloody conquest and, and you know, twisting and delaying English colonisation for over a century in places like Ireland. But when we talk about defiance, we can also talk about, about the way that non-Europeans could could frustrate and even uh, defeat English ambitions commercially and politically, but also militarily as well. And so this, the, the kind of the map of the English and later British Empire is, is really a much shrunken one to what the British want it to be. And it's littered as much with success and conquest uh, uh, as failure and defeat elsewhere. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. 
Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone, or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with indeed use indeed for scheduling screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster and listeners of this show will get a 75 dollars sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at indeed.com slash history extra just go to indeed.com slash history extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about indeed on this podcast terms and conditions apply need to hire you need indeed This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. So I wonder if we could turn now from Asia to North America. You also examine colonial settler communities in North America and their complicated relationship with the indigenous peoples that already lived there. Can you tell us a bit about that complicated dynamic? Yeah, I mean, in in some ways it's not complicated. In some ways it's it's very straightforward. It's it's the complexities I think derive more in places like the Mediterranean or Asia, where the states and empires that the English meet are sophisticated, extensive. They're they're they're, they're the, the pre-modern world superpowers, and the complexity comes from this the English weakness and their need to sort of you know behave themselves, or they would very easily be sort of you know punished by the Mughal Empire or the Japanese shogun. Where it becomes a little more straightforward is in is in the Atlantic, in the Caribbean, and and in North America, where even before the English set foot on North American soil, they've already claimed um, these areas as um, as a new English Virginia, and so they use that term uh, Virginia not for what we know as Virginia now, but for other parts of North America that they try and colonize. Uh, before and so the the first places they go um uh, are a place that that we might know as carolina today the carolinas north and south but uh, was actually an indigenous country uh known as osamacomac and it was a, a thriving region with thousands of uh, algonquin indigenous americans and uh, who mined for for minerals and who um committed to agriculture and had a very intimate relationship with the environment and the land and lived really quite in balance with it. It doesn't suggest they lived prosperous lives. There were, you know, the the difference between going hungry and, and having having lots was always very thin and there were times of drought and things. But generally they managed to establish um a quite harmonious relationship with with the country that we know as the Carolina Sounds. And and so while it wasn't a land of plenty, the Algonquins lived successfully and, and established sophisticated tribal societies, some of which uh, were quite uh, paramount and could rule other tribes. Sometimes a tribe might have 15 or 20 towns under its rule. Often not, though, the tribes in Osamacoma were quite small. And a good example of that is 
Roanoke. So Roanoke is a very famous story uh, now, um, but um, but at the time, uh, Roanoke was quite an insignificant town and also a uh, wider tribe perched in the sort of um, Carolina sounds. And when the English uh, first launched their expeditions to North America, Sir Humphrey Gilbert is the first English colonist who takes a lot of interest in North America. Now, Sir Humphrey was uh, that chap who, in Ireland, lined the path to his tent with the severed heads of innocent Irish women and children. And so he takes that colonial mindset to North America. And in his first kind of reconnaissance missions, he kidnaps indigenous Americans, brings them back. He finds tons of um, what he hopes is black gold. Um, and he brings it back to England and they hope they've hit the mother load. Actually, it turns out to be black stone, not worth a penny. But he's he's amped up now and he's interested in establishing English colonies in North America. Now, fortunately, he gets swallowed up off the Azores in, in, in a storm and his ship goes down. But he passes the baton to um, his half-brother, um, Walter Raleigh. And uh, Walter Raleigh, very famously, is often presented in this swashbuckling way as a courtier to Elizabeth I. He's actually also a voracious colonist, and he conceives the scheme to colonise Ossimacomac. He gains a patent, a charter from Elizabeth I, um, to claim English Virginia, several hundred square miles of North American real estate, that um, is actually the bustling and prosperous uh, country of Ossimacomac, inhabited by the Roanoke and, and other tribes. But that's not going to let Sir Walter Raleigh stop him, nor his colonists. So he sends repeated expeditions to Ossimacomac. And first of all, they come and they sort of establish quite amiable sort of ties with the indigenous tribes um, who feel like they can use the English. English metal goods are very sought after. The Ossimacomac, people of Ossimacomac are no, are no stranger to Europeans. They've had relationships with the Spanish and with the French. And the English accounts of these first encounters sort of uh, give this impression that they were you know, blown over by the white Europeans and that they marvelled at their white skin and that they, they saw them as gods, so these kind of godly figures. And actually, you know, no, that was not the case. And uh, the Algonquins knew a lot about Europe. Some of them had even been there. Um, in, from the 1550s onwards, indigenous Americans travelled regularly back and forth to Europe, sometimes as uh, enslaved people, sometimes as as converts. And so the Algonquins had kind of got the gist of Europe and knew it was both dangerous, but also potentially uh, a fruitful relationship if trade could be established. So the English are cautiously welcomed to Ossimacomac, but very quickly they realise, uh, the people of Ossimacomac, that they're also very dangerous. And so the English visit one tribe and are convinced someone has stolen a silver cup. So their reaction is to, you know, attack the village and burn it down. And very quickly, news of how the English operate sort of filters out across Ossimacomac. And uh, Pemi Sappen, who's the leader of the Roanokes, devises a plan. You know, these guys are too dangerous. Whatever sort of advantage we can derive from them is probably outweighed by, by the disadvantages. And soon many of the villagers start to become depopulated through, they think, invisible bullets that the English are shooting at them. Actually, there's an epidemic from European disease that is sort of sweeping through the villages of Ossimacomac. So um, with this combination of these deadly invisible bullets they think they're being killed with, plus the English violence that they're using against tribes, they devise this kind of grand coalition to drive the English out. And it almost succeeds. The English have to return with other expeditions and eventually they uh, storm ashore and they decapitate the leader of the Roanokes and they and they attack the village and they they massacre the inhabitants 
But that doesn't stop the Ossimacomit. People of Ossimacomit, they fight back and they drive the English off. And eventually Roanoke has to be abandoned because of this dogged resistance, despite the fact that the people of Roanoke and Ossimacomit have been decimated through disease and through violence. They just refuse to acquiesce in the idea that their country could suddenly become an English Virginia. And despite the fact this process over 15 to 20 years takes place, uh, the tribes are resilient and they uh, rebuild themselves. And the English abandon the Carolina Sounds region and they they don't return there for another sort of century or so. They find other places in North America to colonise. And so the experience at Roanoke um, convinces the English that that any ability to to colonise North America is going to need like a quantum leap in resources and uh, and it's not going to be easy. And so what we find is the individual enterprise of wealthy people like Sir Walter Raleigh is abandoned in favour of the formation of trading companies, big companies in which hundreds of individuals and the state pour their resources to try and commit the sort of uh, military force and and immigration to convince people to come and settle in their colonies that would finally overwhelm indigenous americans and this is essentially what happens in what becomes virginia but is actually the indigenous american country of seneca moco they establish a colony at jamestown this is about 30 years after Ossimacomet. Ossimacomet was bruising. The failures at Roanoke sent an entire generation of English people kind of fleeing from North America. Um, they tangled with indigenous power and had uh, been left on, on the worst side of it. But when they come back and they settle at Jamestown in Virginia, it's the Virginia Company which has a royal charter and is invested in by dozens and later hundreds of individuals. And so it's far more an arm of the English state, a projection of English power overseas. But even the Powhatans, who are the indigenous people of um, Seneca Moco, later Virginia, they're able to put up the kind of resistance that takes generations to overcome by the English. And in some sense, the, the first encounter between the Powhatans and the English is one in which the English are forced to become a vassal of Wahoon Sanaka, the paramount chief of the Powhatans. They marvel at his power and, and the surroundings, and, and Wahoon Sanaka essentially adds them to his tribes. He says, you are a new tribe, the tribe of the English. And John Smith, the leader of the English colonists, is uh, John Smith, the English chief. And so they're sort of folded into Powhatan networks and the English have to promise to supply Wahoon Sanaka with metal goods and guns. And in exchange, he'll allow them to to, to live in, uh, in Seneca Moco. But what happens is uh, very quickly the English outstay their welcome. They can't feed themselves. Instead of bringing over agriculturalists and settlers, they bring over the sons of rich gentry and aristocrats who want to come to Jamestown, make a quick fortune like the Spanish did and go home. They bring over mineralogists and metal specialists hoping to mine for gold. Well, Seneca Moco had none of that. And so what happens is within the year, the English start to starve. And rather than supply the Powhatans with everything that they had hoped, in fact, the Powhatans have to essentially supply the English with everything they need to survive. And so there's a real breakdown in that that relationship of vassalage that Wahoon Sanaka had established. So even in the case when the English return in superior numbers and resources, there's still an imbalance of power towards the indigenous Americans. 
And it takes three wars for the English and across 40 years before the English, that, that balance of power tilt towards the English settlers. And in time and again, they're repeatedly defeated by the power happens. And really the, the key factor that, that pushes the English to a status of hegemony where they're able to dominate the power hands is an absolute kind of flood of immigrants or colonists, if you will, from England. So despite the fact the power hands repeatedly succeed in almost driving the English out, very shortly, the losses in their numbers are made up five or tenfold by new arrivals, fleeing the religious, you know, uh, persecution in England and the poverty and depression. So while there are roughly 15,000 Powhatans when the English first arrive, and sometimes no more than 500 English, by the 1630s, there are uh, the English outnumber the Powhatans two to one. And so three decades of war and disease uh, takes its toll, while English numbers are constantly uh, refilled by new arrivals. And so when we look in terms of the resilience of the Powhatans, the Powhatans were not weak. They were not easily conquered or colonised. Um, it's just that superior numbers of the English eventually displaced the Powhatans from their land. And so Powhatan hunting grounds were turned into tobacco plantations. Powhatan fishing regions were trading stations and uh, Powhatan uh, farms uh, were essentially ploughed over and absorbed into English settlements. But it's not like they're just an accidental victim of English expansion. There's also an intentional campaign to eradicate the Powhatans. The English articulate very clearly in the primary sources what we would consider you know, a genocide today. They declare war with the aim of exterminating the Powhatans. And there's a concerted effort to kill every Powhatan person that they find. The Powhatans have to kind of flee their settlements and, and live in the forests and in the wilds of, of Senecamoco. And yet still it takes another decade for the English to finally force the Powhatan Confederacy to submit and become an English vassal. So we're talking about a 40-year um, resistance by the Powhatans and uh, eventually the English overcome them by sheer numbers, not through any kind of English superiority in you know, military or cultural terms, but they gradually grind the Powhatans down and decimate their numbers through war and disease. And so when we think about English colonisation in North America, we often have these stereotypical ideas that, you know, America's, North America is a wilderness you know, depopulated. But a lot of this is English propaganda. You know, North America is home to bustling, densely populated countries, Seneca Moco, Osamacomac. And the English usurped the land, displaced the people, and actively attempted to exterminate them through war. And so this is a really good example of indigenous resilience and power, but also ultimately the tragic story of how those countries no longer exist. So you said at the beginning of this conversation that now is a really exciting and dynamic time for historians of empire. So how do you think that looking at resistance, indigenous resistance in particular, can offer a new take on this subject or perhaps challenge some existing myths that we have about the British Empire? As I said at the beginning, you know, it's an exciting time because there's so much public focus, especially on empire and a lot of quite heated and charged public discourse about the legacy and what it means today. And I think that 
historians of this early modern period have a quite unique opportunity to add something to the discussion. What we often find of the period which almost everyone focuses on, the modern period, the Victorian period, where there's a certain space of the conversation occupied by the idea that there is that there were there were bad things that happened that the British did to the rest of the world, but that was somewhat balanced out by the good things that the British did for the world. And you'll often have cited things like um, the railways. Okay, so we came in, we colonised and we conquered the people of India, but we built India's railway system. And and that's, you know, that's a benefit. And so what they fall into the trap of doing is this kind of balance sheet approach to understanding empire and its legacies. And I think that the trouble with a balance sheet approach is that you could apply that to almost anything. And I think that really for uh, early modernists and for people that look at the pre-modern world before the 19th century, that just doesn't work. Because if you take your metric of empire as being technology, for example, or the rule of law is another one, despite the fact that all of these cultures had laws to begin with. So what we're talking about are, you know, British laws and even the uh, Western education. Once again, you know, these communities had and societies had their own forms of education and knowledge that passed down for generations. None of that happens in the early modern period. The English expansion across the world between 1500 to 1800 is about the monopolization of trade in places like Asia. It's about the the colonisation and acquisition of territory and resources in the Atlantic. And those two things aren't exclusive. Sometimes there's colonisation in Asia and sometimes there's monop- trade monopolies in the Atlantic. But, um, but generally there's no attempt to civilise, as the English and British like to suggest that they're trying to do, as a kind of imperial justification. The Anglo-British Empire in the 17th and 18th century, just like in the 19th century, the conceptually it's a construct of coercion and violence and exploitation people don't go out and establish empires for for, for something to do nor to help other people they are systems of of control and even you know in the later period if you're building railways for example well those railways are to you know improve the maneuverability of troops to suppress uh, indigenous people or to improve the economic extraction of wealth from those countries they're not done to you know improve communications for the people who live there in the early modern period um the violence is the way in which the english and later british empire is essentially articulated and through violence they establish monopolies and they establish control of land and resources even in those places like the early modern superpowers the mughal empire the ottoman empire the english and uh, later the british still try and use force to achieve their ends it's just they're very regularly defeated and contained and then have to learn to behave themselves so they're restrained in some areas but in those areas where they're not restrained they're let loose and we see the colonization and settler societies of the caribbean and uh, and north america and so i think what historians of this earlier period can bring to this conversation of, of race and the legacies of, of inequality is that the emergence of the british empire however it ends up and whatever spin it's given in the 19th and 20th centuries at its heart, and certainly at the beginning, the empire was about coercion and control. And the fact that the entire world wasn't painted imperial pink was simply the fact that indigenous and non-European people prevented that from happening. And so when we understand the legacies of empire today, we have to look continuously 
through the modern period all the way back to the early modern period because some of these communities some of these cultures some of these states and countries that were colonized it took a century or more and that even once they were colonized and conquered they adapted and survived so we often think of the indigenous american people being eradicated well that's not so there are some people living in virginia um who can trace their descendants from the powhatan confederacy um and there are the kalanago the indigenous people of the lesser antilles in the caribbean who disappear from the record in the 18th century once the english conquest has been achieved clung on and survived in pockets in the island and now there's a great diaspora, uh, you know, and their language and culture have been, you know, protected by UNESCO as a, you know, a language of significance to humanity. And what we see now, those people in the 20th century reclaim those cultures and their heritage. And they're having to reclaim it in a sense all over again, because the connective tissue between now and the past was sort of distorted by the rise of the British and other European empires, who didn't just attack these people and their culture through violence and conquest, but also through the scholarship of history. Historians who we often rely on today were colonists themselves who wrote those histories. And it's a very cliched saying that, you know, that, you know, it's the winner who writes history, it's the victor. Um, but the pens of the colonizers ultimately did write the histories of those encounters and often the very histories of those people that they subjugated and um, those people were often written out their achievements were written out their power was written out their victories against the english and british were ignored uh, and instead in, what we have is sort of a literature of of, of of kind of scorn and prejudice and cultural ignorance about the people and their history and their role in shaping the environments around them severely sort of curtailed and undermined and instead for the past hundred years our curriculums and our history books have focused instead on a series of white colonial heroes uh clive of india you know sir francis drake and not on the people that encountered them contained them and often defeated them who came from sophisticated societies wealthy economies advanced militaries who themselves built continent-spanning empires and could achieve hegemony in the early modern world. Instead, we've reduced them to the victims of British imperialism. And I think that by refocusing on this pre-modern period and the way in which the British empire expanded, we can change the conversation. It's not about, okay, we did some terrible things, but look at all the good we did. That doesn't work in the earlier period. And so I think that forces us to grapple with a deeper history of the way in which England and later Britain encountered the world and what it did to it. There are no really positive stories here. There are no railways that you can look to justify genocide, for example. Um, and in fact, what there is is a history of vibrant cultures and rich societies that were annihilated or gradually overpowered and subjugated. That was David Vivas speaking to me, Ellie Cawthorn. His book is The Great Defiance, How the World Took on the British Empire and is published by Ebury Press. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Brittany Colley.